0: All right. It's a joy to be with you this morning. You can go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's Word to First Kings chapter twenty-two. Continuing our study today in the divided kingdom, we're looking at Second, or excuse me, First Kings chapter twenty-two verses fifty-one all the way through Second Kings chapter one. So we'll knock out chapter one of Second Kings today. If you're taking notes, you should have a copy there in front of you that you can use. Uh, The title of our message today is this, Is There a God in Israel? Is there a God in Israel? From Israel's inception as a nation, there was one fundamental truth, that God continued to, to pound over and over again, to, to burn over and over again into the hearts and into the minds of his people. And that fundamental truth is this, that Yahweh alone is God. Yahweh alone is God, and he alone deserves their worship, their obedience, and glory. Right as God redeemed his people out of the nation of Israel, demonstrating his glory, demonstrating his power over the false gods of, of Egypt, and as he entered into covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, what were the, the first words, some of the first words that God proclaimed there to Israel? It was this, Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 3, words that you know very well. Yahweh said this, I am Yahweh your God. Right? There is no other God. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's not as if, though, Yahweh is just one God among a pantheon of gods, and that Israel should just worship Yahweh, before other gods, no, the radical message to Israel was this, that there is no other God but the Lord. Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 32, For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God? Answer, nobody. Yahweh alone is God. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, Thus says Yahweh the king of Israel and his redeemer Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. On the plains of Moab, as the nation was, was readying themselves to go into the promised land, what does Moses proclaim in, in the Shema and, the, and these other words that are so familiar to us? It's this, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And because he is one, you must love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your minds. And yet, what's the sad reality of Israel's history? Uh, The sad reality is that also from their very inception, Israel's ears were deaf and their heart was hard. Before Moses could even come down from the mountain, Israel had made a golden calf. Soon after, Joshua led Israel into the promised land and died. What did the nation do? Judges 2, 11 through 12. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. They forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked Yahweh to anger. And so we see throughout the Old Testament further and further downward in spiritual adultery, they spiraled. And yes, there were many bright spots along the way. There was a judge here. There was a judge there. There was King David. And for a time, there was King Solomon. But it was always the same old pattern, right? Yahweh plus. Yahweh plus Baal. Yahweh plus Asherah. Yahweh plus Molech. Yahweh plus uh, plus Chemosh. It was always Yahweh plus another God. But then something happened in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, that threatened God's people unlike anything that had ever happened before. In 1 Kings 16, 20, 29, we learn that a man by the name of Ahab takes over the throne of the northern tribes of Israel. And as we learn about this man, we've studied and we've looked and seen that this man did more evil than anyone who had ever come before him. What had previously only been permitted alongside the worship of Yahweh was now expounded exponentially. Ahab blew open the doors, if you would, of Baal worship. And now, not only was the worship of Baal permitted now officially became the religion of the states, right? In fact, through Jezebel's incitement, things had turned so upside down that now life in Israel had become Baal minus Yahweh. Yahweh was no longer in the picture. Yahweh was out, Baal was in. And so it was in the middle of this upheaval of the northern kingdom that God chooses to send a man. He chooses to send Elijah the Tishbite to stand against an empire. But it's more than Elijah versus Ahab and Jezebel. It's more than, than that. The real scene, the real point behind the section of chapters that we have just covered, that you have just covered, is this, is that Yahweh is declaring his supremacy. Yahweh is declaring his lordship. Yahweh is declaring that he is God, not Baal, nor any other. Through his prophet, Yahweh is calling his people back to allegiance to him. He's showcasing his superiority, his sovereignty, his power over all. He is God. There is no other. Now yes, what does all that have to do with our passage today? Well, it's crucial because as Dale Ralph Davis points out, you can't understand our passage that we're studying today unless you have this historical context firmly squared into your mind. You see, 2 Kings chapter 1 really serves as a parallel to 1 Kings chapter 18. True, some of the details are different, but the main point stays the same. Once more, we have a showdown between a king and a prophet. Once more, we have a showdown between Baal and Yahweh. Once more, we behold Yahweh demonstrate the greatness of his might as he gloriously triumphs over the advocates of Baal. In a sense, this is round two, if you would, of what started at Mount Carmel. And the point of all this is to reveal to a king, to a nation, who said there was no God in Israel, who said God's word was, was not important, that there is truly one God in Israel, Yahweh, who sovereignly rules over all. So Ahaziah, Israel, is there a God in Israel? Bereans, church, is there a God in our world today? Who sovereignly rules over all? Our passage today leaves us no doubt. Yahweh alone is God, and He demands your sole allegiance. That's the theme, the message, the summary of our text today. Now, our great God demonstrates His supremacy through two striking acts. Two striking acts that are going to demonstrate God's glory here. Act one is that Yahweh is rejected by an apostate king. Yahweh is rejected by an apostate king. Look with me at verse 51. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. Now, at first glance, you know you might like, you know, kind of like the Munchkins of the wis- Wicked, uh, excuse me, of the Wizard of Oz. We might rejoice. We might say, "Ding dong! Right, wicked King Ahab is dead. Woohoo!" Uh, however, the bad mo- bad news is is that there still remains a wicked son to take his father's throne, a son who is going to spew his father's Pagan idolatrous sewage throughout the land of Israel, all the while rejecting the Holy One who sits on His throne. And we see here that Ah uh, Ahaziah's rejection of Yahweh manifests uh, manifests itself in three forms. First, we see his crooked ways. His crooked ways. Look at with me at verse fifty-two. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father. And in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. So he served Baal and worshiped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. All right, at the end of the day, Ahaziah was just a chip off the old rotten block of his father. He walked in the way, notice, not just of his father, but Ahaziah manages the trifecta here, right? He walks in the way of his father, and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam. All right, if Ahaziah is playing basketball, he's just nailed the three-point shot here. He's got them all. And what does he do? He walks in the way. We've seen that throughout the king's narrative. It refers to following in the course of, to to follow in the pattern of. The other day, my son and I and my wife, we, we like to go hiking at Eagle Mountain Lake, uh, which is near our house. And, and there. You know, I, as I'm going and, and kind of leading my way, my, my son just loves to do everything that I like to do. Uh, you know, if I'm going down this path and I'm, and I'm trying to hurdle this, this tree root, guess what? He's trying to hurdle the tree root. If, I, if I'm trying to jump over the rock, he's trying to jump over the rock. If I'm trying to scale the, the hill, he's trying to scale the hill, right? He's trying to follow in my pattern, my way that I'm going. That's the kind of idea here. Ahaziah is following in the way the course Of his parents. By their wicked uh, lifestyle, Ahab and Jezebel had, had carved out a crooked path that deviated from the law of God. Now, here is Ahaziah hurrying along, chasing after, running after, pursuing the example of his parents. Ahaziah just grew up to be just like mom and dad. And usually that's a good thing, right? Well, it, well, it is, unless your parents also happen to be the most depraved people on the planet, then it's not a good thing, all right? So here's Ahaziah. He's growing up in the royal court, and he sees his parents who hate God, who hate God's word, who refuse to listen to God's prophets, who are selfish, covetous, manipulative, uh, mani- uh, manipulative, oppressive, proud, ruthless murderers. And above all that, above all that, the most repulsive way was that of their idolatry. And so like mom, like dad, we see in verse 30, uh, 53, Ahaziah served Baal and worshiped him according to all that he had done. That then brings us to his second form of rejection. And that's his feeble rule. His feeble rule, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Now, before we move on, too far. Let me just remind us. I know you're aware of this, but as a reminder, we know that 1st and 2nd Kings is really just one book. Right? Yes, it's divided 1st Kings, 2nd Kings, but really in the original manuscripts, this would have been one book just put on separate scrolls. And so we have a division that started in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, continuing in our English version, but really there is no major division here. The author just continues his train of thought onto another page, if you would. So we have in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, this, Now Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. The word now there in a the Hebrew grammar signifies a negative outcome, a, a consequence, if you would, of Ahaziah's crooked ways. Uh, the, the author links his evil with his feeble rule. In other words, it says, Because Ahaziah had set his heart to do evil in the sight of the Lord continually by rejecting Yahweh in favor of the Baals, his authority then over the foreign nations was diminished. This is what God had promised in the the Old Testament, in the law, in Torah, that in time, not only would Israel lose their control over the nations that surrounded them, they would also be dispossessed out of the land as well. And so that's exactly what we see here. Ahaziah has rejected God, and so his reign begins to slip. Moab, Moab, who has been under Israel's control since the time of David, is now slipping out of his grasp. And as we continue on this chapter, at this point we might expect to see Ahaziah enter into a war with Moab to regain his power and control. However, that doesn't happen. In fact, it doesn't happen until chapter 3, where the author picks up where he leaves off here. Because in the meantime, what we see is that Ahaziah suffers a terrible accident. And it's through this accident that we see the third form of his rejection, and that's his idolatrous heart. His idolatrous heart in verse 2. It's often said when your back is up against the wall, your true colors come out, right? This was true for Ahaziah, who showed that his idolatrous heart was all in for Baal. Look with me at verse 2. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper room, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So apparently, not only did Ahaziah walk crookedly, he also walked rather clumsily. This guy somehow managed to, to fling himself out from one of his upper story window screens. And, and the byproduct of that was some kind of injury that led to maybe an affection or some illness of some type, so that now here he is on his deathbed face to face with his possible end. No doubt this is the most dire circumstance of Ahaziah's life. But what's he going to do? How's he going to respond here in this moment? Who is he going to turn to? Will he finally be brought to his knees and turned to Yahweh, Israel's covenant God? No, in an unswerving demonstration of the allegiance of his ill-placed faith, right, in the most pivotal moment of his life, Ahaziah rejects the only true God for idols, right? He turns to that which cannot hear, to that which cannot see, to that which cannot move, which cannot heal, which cannot save, instead of turning to the Lord God who hears when his people call upon him, who, who sees when his people are in need, who can heal all the diseases of his people who stretches out his mighty right hand to save and deliver his people out of the pit of their affliction. And so we see in verse 2, so he sent messengers and he said to them, "Go inquire of baal the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness." Eh, Yahweh who created the heavens and the earth or, you know, above, who was made by human hands. Eh, you know, I'm going to go with this idol. And so we see that Ahaziah sends his messengers to inquire of him. And it's ironic, right? We saw in chapter 22 earlier that Ahab was condemned for doing what? For inquiring of the word of the Lord, but not listening to the word of the Lord. Here's Ahaziah saying what? Eh, you know... Inquiring of the word of the Lord got my dad killed. I'm not even going to inquire of the word of the Lord. Instead, I'm going to inquire of this idol. So then Baal's above here is apparently was a local deity who had earned a reputation for himself as being able to either provide some sort of miraculous healing. It was thought or, or to provide some type of divine oracle. We don't know exactly why. Ahaziah is turning to him, but turning to him, nonetheless, he does. Whatever the reason, his heart was firm, right? He didn't believe that there was a God in Israel who could save him. He didn't believe God's word was important for him to hear. Instead, he needed to go to a pagan city 45 minutes, excuse me, 45 miles outside the land of Israel and call upon him rather than Israel's covenant God. Before we move on, just think with me how outrageous this is, right? Whose son is this? This is Ahab's son. And, And think of all that Ahaziah would have experienced in his life growing up to this point. Think of all that he saw God do in his father's life and in the kingdom during his father's life. He would have experienced God's power in preventing rain from falling upon the earth for three years and six months. He had heard, maybe he was even there and and saw God's supremacy over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He had experienced God's gracious conquest of Aram not only once, but twice. And he would have experienced The unstoppable power of God's word come to pass, even in his father's own life, as Ahab had failed to listen to Micaiah's warning and died. This man who saw all of that, this man who experienced all of this, this is the one rejecting Yahweh. How outrageous is that? And don't miss the application here, right? How often are you and I tempted to do the same? When our backs are up against the wall, when we find our t- ourselves in times of supreme desperation, how easy can it be to turn away from our creator and turn to creation, How often do we find ourselves in dire straits? Do do we find ourselves turning away from the saving arm of God's outstretched hand and turning to the the puny arm of the flesh? Brothers and sisters, it can be so luring right in those moments to, to try and get ourselves out of our jams by trusting in ourselves and not in God. But by trusting in our idols and not in the Lord. And not just in the dire moments, not just when things are are going hard, but when things are going well, to then put our trust in self. I got this. I I don't need God, I I don't need His Word. I can do this. My wisdom, my ingenuity. My financial resources, my charisma, my power, my strength, my authority, my connections, my silver tongue. I can get myself out of this. But like Ahaziah, every time we do so, we are turning our backs. We're turning our backs on the only one who can truly save us in our time of need. And instead, we are putting our trust in something that is powerless to deliver. And so as we sit here, and as you sit here, maybe shaking your head at Ahaziah, saying, how could this guy do this? This guy is absurd. Now, be careful. Must there be any bales in your own heart that you are turning to and putting your trust in when you are also in a hard situation. So this is the first striking act then. Ahaziah, while on his deathbed, has chosen to reject Yahweh, and this decision now sets the stage for act number two. Ahaziah has officially declared through his rejection, there is no God in Israel. And so now God says, it's my turn to respond. Let me show you. Let me show you whether or not There is a God in Israel. It brings us to act number two. Yahweh is revealed through a faithful prophet. Yahweh is revealed through a faithful prophet. And we see that this revelation, Yahweh's revelation through Elijah's ministry, progresses in three tiers, if you would, with each tier of Elijah's ministry bringing the glory of God into crisper focus. The first, then, is the prophetic pronouncement. The prophetic pronouncement. Look with me at verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore thus says the Lord You shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up but you shall surely die Then Elijah departed So most likely this angel of the Lord is not a is not a preincarnate appearance of Christ some see that as being one I do not we do not see many of the te- contextual indicators here in the passage that would point to us that this is a messenger, uh, excuse me, a divine messenger, but rather what the author is trying to do is contrast the messenger of Ahaziah with the messenger of God. Just as Ahaziah sent his messengers to inquire of the word of Baal, Yahweh now sends his messengers to give Elijah the word of the Lord. What was this prophetic pronouncement? Essentially, what Yahweh proclaims here is this is that Ahaziah, by making this decision, you are proclaiming to Israel, you are proclaiming to the world this that there is no God in Israel. That you're saying there is no Savior, that there is no Redeemer, that there is no King, there is no healer, there is nothing. So destitute is is Israel's spiritual prov- um, poverty, that you're saying I must go outside the land to find a God who will help me. You're saying that I must go to the idols of the nations to find my deliverance. Ahaziah, you, are, you have declared that the I am who I am is not. As one author puts it, quote, a more direct insult to the God of Israel by the nation's most prominent citizen, cannot easily be imagined. Therefore, here is the, uh, the oracle you are seeking. You will surely die. Because of all that you have done, you will surely die. The Hebrew here is emphatic. There's no getting around this, Ahaziah. You have met your Demise. Well, verse 5, the messengers hear this. What do they do? They returned to the king and they said to them, excuse me, they returned to the king and the king said to them, why have you returned? The, The messengers here, they were so struck by Elijah's authority and his message that they immediately took tail between their legs and they returned back to the king, not fearing the wrath that might come upon them for abandoning the royal mission. And Ahaziah knew something was amiss. These messengers had returned far too quickly for the task he had sent them. So he demands to know why have they returned and not done as he said. Verse 6, they said to him, a man came to meet us and said to us. Notice they don't know who this guy is. Go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. This word would have been quite a shock to Ahaziah. So he wants to ascertain the authority behind this lone prophetic figure. And so he begins peppering these messengers with questions. Verse 7, he said to them, what kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? They answered him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. Literally, the Hebrew says here that he was a lord of hair. Meaning that, yeah, I know, it's pretty funny. Meaning that Elijah either clothed himself with hairy garments, which would have been the conventional prophetic garb of the day, or that Elijah was a hairy man himself, referring to maybe some crazy hair or a huge beard. I don't know, Duck Dynasty type, I don't know, something like that. But regardless of the meaning, the irony remains. They were sent out to inquire of Beelzebub. Beelzebub his name means the Lord of Flies. Instead, they met with Elijah, the Lord of Hair. So we got the Lord of Flies against the Lord of Hair. I don't know, kind of Hebrew. It's, it's quite it's, uh, kind of funny at this point. But not only is that, he is God's true prophet. The most important part is this is God's true prophet. Upon hearing this, Ahaziah knows immediately who's the culprit behind this. He, his parents' arch nemesis, and he cries out in verse 8, he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite! Dun-dun-dun-dun. <laughs> this is insightful. Ahaziah knows quite well who this guy is. He knows who Elijah is. He knows, and he's familiar with his ministry. He knows that what Elijah says comes about. What Elijah prays comes about, he should receive Elijah's words with fear and trembling because this man speaks the word of God. But does the king listen? Does he take heed to the prophetic pronouncement and humble himself and repent? No, following in dad's crooked ways, he too aligns himself against Elijah not just Elijah. He aligns himself against the God Elijah serves and the word Elijah declares. That brings us to tier two then, the prophetic showdown, the prophetic showdown, verse nine through 16. And what we're gonna see here is like on Mount Carmel, Yahweh will show once again that he alone is God as he triumphs in victory through his prophets. Look with me at verse nine. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50. Ahaziah, he's, he's not too happy about Elijah's message here. He, he decided to do something about it, and he didn't decide to repent, he decided to resist. The king sends not messengers, he doesn't send ambassadors, but he sends a squad of soldiers with their commanding officer. And, and they are not sent in order to bring Elijah back to the throne room for some tea. This is not a parlay. This is not peace. No, like Jeroboam did back in 1 Kings chapter 13. And like many of the hostile governments in our day and age, Ahaziah wanted to seize Elijah like a notorious outlaw and drag him before the throne. Perhaps thinking that if he could bind God's prophet, then he could bind God's word. And notice where they find Elijah in verse 9. And this commander went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of the hill. A scene similar to 1 Kings 18 when Elijah was on the top of Mount Carmel. So here are these soldiers. They have Elijah surrounded. They are commanding him to come down. They say, uh, they say to him, O man of God, notice the king says, Come down. Right? Notice what's happening here. These soldiers. Yeah, they rightly address Elijah as a man of God, but they follow that up with the king says. Hey, the king tells you Elijah to come down, all right? Ahaziah was attempting to, to impose his authority over the authority of the prophets. And, and not just this man of God, but he was attempting to impose his authority over the God that Elijah represented. Ahaziah was attempting to assert his supremacy and the supremacy of the idols that he trusted in over the supremacy of the true God who reigns in Israel. Therefore, those who scoff at this passage, and and many do understand, many in so-called Christian circles scoff at this chapter. They, they, They claim that this is an immoral Chapter that, that what we see here is, should be taken out of the Bible. But those who, who say that miss the point. That this is a showdown of immense proportions. Ahaziah and his men have shown complete contempt for the God of Israel in his word. This apostate king has declared war on the king of heaven. And if allowed to continue, he will annihilate the people of God. In light of that, God determines it is time to act. It is time to teach this insolent king an important lesson and reveal to the nation whether or not there is a God in Israel. Verse 10, Elijah replied to the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your 50. Then fire came down from heaven. And consumed him and his 50. Elijah's response here is not about personal reputation. Elijah's response here is about the glory of God. The real issue was the reputation of God's name. And so Elijah calls upon the true God to reveal his supremacy once more through fire, just like he did on Mount Carmel. To which God miraculously responds. Upon this point, David hits the nail upon the head. He says this, quote, this is a little long. Fire was the burning issue of the day. The God who answered by fire would show himself to be the real God. Oh, it should have been unnecessary. King Ahaziah surely knew what had taken place just a few years before at uh, Mount Carmel that day had made the point Yahweh is the real God and Baal, a sorry non-entity. But Ahaziah didn't get the points. When he has an urgent need for health care, he appeals to Baal. Baal, the loser. What do you do when someone is so dense, so thick that he doesn't grasp what fire means? You send more fire. But the fire is not only demonstrative, as at Carmel in First Kings 18, but destructive. The first commandment really matters to Yahweh, and Ahaziah just doesn't get it, end quote. Ahaziah, he truly doesn't get it. Not heeding this message from God, he sends a second round of soldiers with an even harsher message. Look at verse 11. So he again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. The soldier treats Elijah almost as if he is an obstinate child, defying his mom and dad. You come down here quickly, young man, thus says my king. And what arrogance. Arrogance. Verse 12, Elijah replied to them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Another miraculous statement and proof. Surely, right? Surely by now Ahaziah would get it. Surely at this point he would lay down his arms and surrender the white flag and say, Yes, God, you alone are God. No, as Romans 8, chapter 7, excuse me, as Romans 8, 7 states, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. This man has set his mind on the things of the flesh, and he will not subject himself to God. Just like Pharaoh, Ahaziah will not subject himself to God, even in the midst of God's glorious revelation of himself through these acts. Verse 13, so he again, hitting his his forehead upon the wall here, he again sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty, When the third captain of 50 went up, he came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, "O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first captain, the first two captains of 50 with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. No doubt this captain was sent with the same message and for the same purpose As the first two captains. But there's one major difference here. He saw the works of God and trembled. He heard of the judgment of God and feared greatly. And in light of that, he comes not with an air of superiority... But falling on his knees and on his face, he begs and calls out for mercy. Be gracious to me, Elijah. Those guys got roasted. I don't want to be like them. And you notice he calls not just for himself, but he also is calling out for his men. He has recognized Yahweh's supreme authority over life and death. Finally. Finally, we have a character that gets it. Someone who finally recognizes that there is a God in Israel. It is Yahweh alone. Brothers and sisters, men and women, is this not instructive for us today? The fires of God's judgment will rain down upon the earth. The the lake of fire will burn bright and hot for all those who, like Ahaziah, do not acknowledge the supremacy of Yahweh over all the earth, but who turn to their idols. For those who, like Ahaziah, will not bend the knee in exclusive allegiance to God alone. And so if anybody comes here today not trusting in the Lord, not bending to him alone, but worshiping whatever idol might be in your heart. Whatever you have put your trust, your love, your supreme allegiance to. Friend, if that is you today, then flee like this captain. Flee, run. The wrath that is to come is going to consume. And flee to the open arms of the Savior. Come down and fall down on your knees before him. Cry out to Christ to be gracious. Cry out to Christ to spare your life, that you and your life might be precious in his sight, that he might be mighty to save. And friend, let me tell you the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that if you come to him with this kind of broken and contrite heart, he will by no means cast out. His precious blood will be applied to the doorposts of your heart and the wrath of God will pass over you. So come to him today in faith and repentance. He is a glorious Savior. Strikingly and remarkably, Yahweh has revealed his supreme glory through this second tier of Elijah's ministry. He has pronounced it, he has revealed it through these acts of judgment, but there's one more tier that finally and ultimately showcases his glory. Thirdly, it's the prophetic fulfillment. The prophetic prophetic fulfillment in verses 15 through 18. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. So here is Elijah now commanded to go down. God accepts this this captain's mercy and his plea, and tells Elijah, Go down with him and the, Elijah does, and now he is face to face with King Ahaziah, and he delivers to the king the oracle of the true God in Israel. While Ahaziah was looking for the word of Baal, he now gets, thus saith the Lord, verse 16. Then Elijah said to the king, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal's above, the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Notice, he's not going to die because he fell down and got sick. He is going to die because he has rejected Yahweh. He has rejected the word of the only true and living God. Therefore, judgment has come to his doorstep, and he is going to die. Verse 17, So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. And because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? In an amazingly unremarkable sentence, Ahaziah dies just like that. Once and for all, Yahweh has revealed his supremacy over Ahaziah, over Baal, over Israel, and over the world through the fulfillment of his omnipotent word. So is there a God in Israel? Is there a God upon his throne ruling over the heavens and over the earth? From the life of King Ahaziah, we can say with certainty certainty, there is. Yahweh alone is God, and He demands your soul allegiance. As we end, I want to leave you with this statement from the Scots Confession of 1560. It sums up our response of those who would bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sums up our response to the God who reigns. The opening line of chapter one of God, reads this, quote, we confess and acknowledge one God alone, to whom alone we must cleave, whom alone we must serve, whom only we must worship, and in whom alone we put our trust. Let this be the response of our lives today. We have one God. Eternally existing in three co-eternal, co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He alone deserves our worship. He alone deserves our service. He alone deserves the glory. He alone deserves our love and our lives. May we give it to him today. Let's pray. Father, you alone are God. You declare that in your word, both through commands, through teaching, but also through examples, illustrations, as we see even here with King Ahaziah. Lord, let us heed the warning from his life that here was a man who rejected you, who defied you, who went to the gods around him, and not the only true God, and so he was judged. His heart was hostile towards you. And Lord, there can be a temptation even today and our world, to turn to the quote-unquote gods around us, whether that be Darwin or whether that be uh, Muhammad or whether that be Buddha or whoever it might be, whether it be our own genius, our own personal strength, our own finances, our own bake statement. Lord, these gods that are around us, but Lord, you only are God. You only are Lord. You have proven that once and for all through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and was raised again. And Lord, as Romans ten nine through ten says, we confess Him as Lord. We believe that You raised Him from the dead, and we give our lives to love Him, to worship Him, and to follow Him today. And so, Lord, would You have our sole allegiance for everyone? I pray in this room. And if there's anyone here that will that has not bent the knee to You that today, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation that they would bend the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. For if they do not do it today, they will do it on the day of judgment. And what I pray that they would do it now. In your name we pray, amen.